Welcome, you're listening to the rest of the sermon, a podcast where we dive deeper in content and conversation of last Sunday's sermon at Westside in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. For more information, you can visit our website at westsidepb.org. And we're back. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. We are back. Welcome back to the rest of the sermon. Rest of the sermon. Hey guys, we've got some exciting stuff coming for you in the weeks to come. Sorry about last week. We know so many of you on Wednesday morning started your routine, got in your car, went to that podcast feed, yeah, and it wasn't there. And it spiraled your entire day to our tens of thousands yeah. of subscribers yeah. out there. Uh, we let you down. We're sorry. We're sorry. It's but our fault. we've got some really cool stuff coming. We were in Atlanta, Georgia um, this past week, and Westside is officially a part of the Grace Family of Churches. Grace Family of Churches, bro. Grace Family of Churches. It was really awesome this past Sunday, or I'm sorry, two Sundays ago, not this past Sunday, but the Sunday before that. Got to welcome everybody. You'll be hearing a little bit more about that in the future. We are a part of a new network and family of churches. You can check it out at gfc.tv, Grace Family of Churches. Check it out. Really cool. It's a family and network of churches based out of Atlanta, Georgia, and you'll be hearing from some really cool pastors and some people that are a part of that. And so that's where we were. Um, We also brought back the gold for Westside. Yeah. So they messed up and had some games. So what it was was kind of like a staff orientation. Hey, guys, this is the Grace Family of Churches and just intense training, high level, high quality it was like drinking out of a fire hydrant. It was the, it was eight hours or twelve hours the first day. It was a long day. It was eight to eight. Yeah. It was twelve hours. It was intense. At the end of the day, we played the Olympics. Yep. They messed around and were like, hey, let's do some competitive games. They didn't know Westside was gonna be there though. So it was myself, Pastor Tyler, and then Matt Blackburn, who's chairman of our board, who is probably, if not the most competitive person <laughs> that I know. <laughs> So after all the training, they were like, hey, guys, we're going to play these games. And then they like introduced all of them. And I just looked over at Matt and Matt looked at me and it was a look like it's on. This is we're going to win this. It's on. Yeah, it is on. And we brought back the gold. Man. We did. We won. Westside won and yep. pair with, uh, I think, Snellville. They, uh, they, they Snellville. Yep. They yeah. messed around and had um, uh, beanbag toss, which Matt is a pro at. You know, he's put in many hours in that. Yeah, and Matt, then, we won't tell the story about how that went. Yes. <laughs> he was, let's just say he was a finalist in that for sure. Um, I did axe throwing, and which is not my strong suit. I know many of you are like, wow, Jason's probably super skilled at throwing well, axes. As, as tall as you are, you had the advantage to I will use say this. your body as a whip to fling that thing down. There the was one person who hit the bullseye. <laughs> And that was me. Uh, All yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. And then you did the... Yeah, it's called Can Jam. Can Jam. It's basically a trash can with a hole slit in the side. Yep. And you try to throw Frisbee into it. Yep. But you yeah. have background in Frisbee golf. Mm-hmm. So we were like Tyler's on that one. Yeah. So it was good. It was awesome. It was a lot of fun. I'm really excited for you guys to be hearing about that in the future. But this past Sunday, Pastor Tyler was on the mound. He was pitching this past Sunday. There it was. There, there it was. That man. was me. You closed us out in our Summer in the Psalms series. And so today... Oh, is that it? We're done. We're done, man. We're done. That was wow. it. Wow. Yep. Closing but the door. Ten weeks in the Psalms. Yeah. And so the tables have turned today, my friend. <laughs> yeah, so. I'm, I'm still in front of the mixer over here, but... Yeah. Uh, the turntables have turned. Have turned uh, Jason from the will office. Be asking me questions, and <laughs> yeah. I don't have a phenomenal answer for everything. So nah. prepare yourself. It might be a little shorter today. Oh nah, man, it's good stuff. But, yeah, really good stuff. Yeah. So grab your Bibles. Um, Psalm chapter ten is where we will be today. I will read our text, and then we will dive in. So Psalm chapter ten, picking up on this past Sunday's sermon. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. 
Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are cursed, sink down, and fall by his might. And he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the afflicted renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account, but you do see? For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his hand. O Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Psalm chapter 10, man. So you were on the mound this Sunday. Yeah. And um, what I love, so what the purpose of the rest of the sermon is, is to kind of engage into a little bit of conversation that goes a little bit beyond of the sermon. Yeah. And uh, what was it like just through the prep process? There were a few comments and a few things um, just kind of preparing for the sermon that you said that I think it's really helpful to bring people in on the process as to what it is to engage with the text kind of at the level and degree um, that we do that requires you to preach on a Sunday. And so um, let us in a little bit on on what that sermon prep process was like. What were the emotions? What were you feeling? What was it like? What was Psalm 10 to you? All that stuff. Yeah, well, when several weeks back you had asked me uh, to to preach out... uh, from somewhere in the Psalms, and uh, I'm not gonna lie, I completely spaced. <laughs> I completely forgot about that. And you were like, "Hey, did you pick a Psalm? Are you good?" And I was like, uh, "I'm not gonna lie, I forgot." And uh, you were like, "Well, hey, Psalm 10 is in two weeks from now. Um, why don't you buckle down on that one?" And so I opened my Bible and I read Psalm 10, and I said, "Oh no!" <laughs> <laughs> yes. I said, "Oh no!" Um, I have never. I love the Psalms. Um, some of some of my, most of the songs that we have written at Westside have come through books of the Bible. Several of them have been influenced by the Psalms, and I love the language that they use when it comes to, as we've said in the past, they help us to express our emotions in a biblical way. And I have never, um, I think I preached Psalm 88 uh, when we did a summer playlist a yeah. while back, and uh, I thought that one was a difficult psalm. Um, but then I read Psalm 10. <laughs> yeah. Let us in on that. What's it yeah. like to to approach a text? Because here's a reason why I'm saying this. I think it's, <clears throat> I heard a guy say, our strengths impress people, but our weaknesses connect us to mm-hmm. people. And so for somebody who is in vocational ministry, you are paid staff, you, yeah. you are paid to do these things, to use that type of language. Yeah. And for people to hear like, whoa, Psalm 10's hard. Yeah. That's that's a heavy text. Yeah. I think it's helpful yeah. for, for people to hear that. Like because yeah. it's a normal thing and it's yeah. and it's okay. <clears throat> so so when you were engaging with this psalm and you were like, man, this is heavy, what was that like for you to continue to to dive into that text? Yeah, well, first of all, I knew it was good for me because these That's are, good. Yeah, and I know it's good to to kind of dive into anything in the Bible. God's word doesn't return void. Yeah. And, and but the first thing that I noticed when I approached this was like, okay, I need to unpack and sort of get as to language that we use as a skeleton for the text. Yeah. Sort of see what it is saying. Yeah. And my mind immediately went to, oh, here are these kinds of people. Yeah. And I realized just in doing that. I have already identified myself with the oppressor in the psalm, with the wicked man who has all of these thoughts in his mind and his heart Mm. about how other people are 
existing in categories like the helpless and the poor and the fatherless so that he can take advantage of them and categorizing people. So right off the bat, I knew after identifying that within myself, that that had to be a part of the sermon. Wow, man, that, that's uh, that's good. That's good insight. That is, you, Christians were not exempt, <clears throat> I think, from being from oppressing others or from being prideful. Yeah, that. for sure, absolutely. And I think one of the things and and a big strength of your sermon was is that you were very clearly tied to the text. There was a lot of look at verse seven, look at verse eight, and yeah. kind of walking through and doing that stuff. When you framed out sort of the text, was it sort of like catching your breath a little bit? It was like, okay, yeah. this thing is like looking up at a giant mountain and I'm just going to start yeah. climbing this thing. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think breaking it down into why, David asking why to begin with, and then sort of seeing, and Jason, if you guys don't know, Pastor Jason is the master of alliteration. <laughs> um, and so I sort of broke stuff down and he was like, oh yeah, there are three P's for that. And so I'm crediting <laughs> I just listening to a lot of rap music, man. That's all it is. <laughs> but um, breaking it down into asking why and then seeing a pair of people and seeing a prayer for justice and then seeing the provider of yeah. justice. And I think once once that skeleton comes together, it's like, okay, I can start to flesh this out. How are these things applicable to our hearts and the minds of people at Westside, myself, and where can we go from there? Some action steps and all of that. And yeah. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I said this, uh, I'm going to talk about the preaching lab for a minute. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, preaching lab <clears throat> is something that um, Pastor Jason did for me a while back, the first time he asked me to preach and has done it for other people who have filled in the pulpit as well. And it's basically a resource where you preach your sermon to like a group of people who yeah. hear and co- compliment you and then criticize in a healthy way, uh, things that we can focus on, all of that. And that was an immense, immensely helpful thing for me this week, especially because of the content of the psalm. And one of the things I drew out of that preaching lab um, from you guys uh, who helped me in that way was I said I was afraid to go there. Yeah, for sure. And what I meant was by that was, I mean, the the climate that we live in, not just culturally in America, but globally right now, um, and even just locally in our neighborhoods and stuff like that we are we are seeing this kind of oppression take place and i was afraid to say i think my original line was as christians we have a responsibility to be a voice to be a voice for the oppressed yeah and i stopped it there right and you guys helped me out and said hey it's in the text and david is doing this not just a voice for the oppressed but also against the oppressor 100 percent. and i I was afraid to go there. Yeah, because sure. Because that's that's difficult to say, and I yeah. I also don't like live in conflict and draw. No, yeah. <laughs> but I think everything that, you're saying is is really important to pause and discuss. Number one, we really care about the craft of communication, and so if Steve Jobs is going to work for six months on his keynote and he's delivering a phone, right? Like just technology or somebody does something, no matter what it is, we're handling the word of God. Yeah. And so we want that craft to be good. And also, in a sort of selfish way, these are things that I never had done for me. Yeah. It was like, hey, you're going to preach, and you know, this coming Sunday, it's Labor Day or something like that. And then people would never show up, and that's the only time ever I would get to preach growing up. It would be like, hey, this is Christmas Eve and right. all of that stuff. And so doing a preaching lab is to help you gain that craft, but it is to wrestle through the text on that stuff. But what I hear you saying is, and I think it's really important for people to hear this, is that there is a prophetic aspect of preaching where you feel like you are standing against the culture. Yeah. That that you stand up with the Bible in your hand and the Spirit of God in your heart, and the task of every preacher is thus saith the Lord. Yeah. That's the task. Yeah. And there is a bit of wrestling with, oh my goodness, like I'm standing up and saying this and this is very much so going against the culture yeah. and I feel that tension. Yeah. And you when know? you say culture, like I don't want us to think the culture outside the church doors alone and yep. what's going it's within and that's Absolutely. one of the main reasons I was afraid honestly to go there was because of a room full of people that I'm basically saying, hey, 
everyone in this room is the oppressor. Yeah, sure. We everyone all, in this absolutely. room is, is oppressed. And well, you did the right thing, and you know we say that we're God's messengers, not God's editors. Yeah. And so that's another reason why we preach through consecutively through books of the Bible is because we come across topics that you would never plan on a whiteboard. Right. Like, oh, hey, I think we should hit the topic of oppression and <laughs> injustice. That would be great for our people. Right. But when you march through a book of the Bible, these things sort of pop up. It was great. You you opened with a great illustration um, <laughs> to describe sort of how David opens the psalm with that and yeah. um, tell us this story about Jessie Ray. Yeah, she's she just turned four. She's our oldest um, oldest child. We have three of them now, thank God. And she just turned four in August, and she's in the Y phase, yeah. um, which is hilarious and irritating. <laughs> All at the same time. Yeah, and baby, if you're listening to this years down the road, I love you so much. <laughs> I, we love when you ask why, because it gives us an opportunity to give you answers and to help you think for yourself. So we love you. But she's in the why phase right now, and uh, oh my goodness, like every single thing, man. It's yep. like from hitting her brother, pushing him down, like we telling her you need to say sorry is met with, well, why? Right. Like, well, because that's mean. And we're trying I love, not to be... I love the honesty there. Yeah. Why do I have to apologize? Yeah, I, it's I something I don't want to do. Right. Why? Why? First thing in the morning, like, hey, daddy, will you come play Doc McStuffins with me? I'm like, baby, I'm halfway through cooking your sausage right now. Right. And you need to eat. Well, why? Well, because you're a tornado of terror in this house. And yeah. if you don't have energy, you're not going to be able to destroy the house like you do on a regular right. basis. And uh, my favorite one... Um, Jesse's been talking to our Echo Dots in the house a lot. And so if you have one on right now, it's probably going to fire off. But Jesse basically just went, Alexa, why? <laughs> no yeah. context. Yeah, no just context, no content. Deep she just, philosophical yeah, question. so funny. I like, love it. She comes home now and she's like, Alexa, I'm home. And Alexa's like, it's so nice to see you. That's great. And then she'll respond with why. I love it. <laughs> like, but you tied that in yeah. and, and said that David starts in the very first. Uh, yeah, it's the first two lines of yeah. verse one. Why, oh Lord, do you stand far away? And why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Yeah. And I'm like... That, I mean, we've seen it time and time again in the Psalms. It's the first place he goes. He yep. goes to God in prayer. But we see him doing here is asking a couple questions, which I love. Like, I love the honesty there, and I love that it teaches us that we don't ever grow out of asking why. Yeah, we're God's children. God yeah. wants us to come to him just like Jesse Ray comes yeah. to you guys and ask why. Well, and one thing that I noticed, and I... I discovered some of this in a commentary. I can't remember which one. You threw a stack of books on my desk. <laughs> and, and I was reading through one, and uh, one thing that I remember pulling out from um, verse 1 was, I think the guy said, the, the psalmist, uh, David is more concerned about God's absence or his perceived absence than his predicament that he's in Amen. or that the other people are Amen. in. It's more concerning for David, even though God is not absent, David is expressing his concern and first that he seems more concerned with God's perceived absence yes. than the plight that is going on and mm. taking place. And that's where he starts. That is a healthy sign it, of our relationship yeah, with God. It's perspective, man. It's perspective. <clears throat> yeah. it, but you tied it in and you said there's a reason why, just two quick things as to why asking why is a good thing. And you said it keeps us dependent on God for the answers to those hard questions. Yeah. And, and I like that because... In the, in the childlike faith that Jesus says that we should have and how Jesse Ray asked that why, there's a level of humility there mm -hmm. of going to God and asking why. Now, what David is doing is he's looking out at the world and he's seeing all of these injustices. He's seeing bad people prosper. He's seeing all of this stuff and he's asking why, but there's a level of humility there. And you said that it keeps us dependent on God for the answers. Yeah. And, and then the second thing was is that it keeps us compassionate towards others yeah. as well. And when you ask why, I think there does have to be a level of empathy there. Yeah. Of when you see people going through something, um, you know, I think of congregants in our church who are going through a season of life. Yeah. And they're some of the best people that I know of character and integrity and loving yeah. the Lord. And it's like, why are th why are those people going through that? God? Yeah. you know. So yeah. I loved your application on that. But you gave us a big idea. You said just as a thirty thousand foot view, what Psalm ten does for us is that as Christians, we need to have an awareness of 
and action against yeah. injustices in the world. Yeah. And I love that big idea. I mean, number one, because I think it's absolutely there in the text. But number two, because I love the words awareness and then action. Yeah. I think, um, you know, if we were to map this out on a matrix, I think some of us are either A, hyper aware. Yeah. And so we're posting a bunch of stuff. Right. And then we're like, look at all this. Why aren't you? And, and there's always a cause just yeah. constantly on Facebook. There's, you know, it's look at these animals. Look, I, look at, right. I mean, it's just constantly all the time. Yeah. There's either people who are like, you need to be hyper aware. Or there's people that are like, we don't need to spread this message. We just need to do something. Right. We just need action towards right. towards this. Can you tease that out a little bit as to how you sort of landed there? On yeah. That? Well, uh, originally, I think I, my big idea was just as believers, we have a, we have a responsibility to be a voice for the oppressed. Yeah, and sure. That's where that came through of like, hey, we also need to have actions against this. And um, it, to bounce back just a quick moment on dependency upon God and compassionate towards others, I just love that David is, a lot of us ask why about things that are going on in our lives, mm. which is good, that's honest, and that's healthy. But I love David's perspectives that even though he is he is likely experiencing this, and just a few psalms back, I mean, his son is out to get him right. for the throne, but he's his focus is on those around him, and I love that compassion. But yeah. but that is awareness, and I think I completely agree with what you're saying about like hyper aware or hyper action. But I think what we see in the text is is David David almost gives like equal playing field for both. We see like a healthy balance of both his awareness. I mean, he's very detailed in verses like three through 11 about yeah. what what the oppressor is doing to the oppressed. He's very aware. He's being honest about it. But he also gives just, I mean, in, verse, in verses two and then verses 14 through the end of the psalm, almost another half of the psalm, He's praying for God to take action. Yeah. And it's not really himself. Like he's not relying on himself yep. to take the action and to and to move forward and, and basically say, God, strengthen my hands so that I can smite these people. Right. He is completely and totally dependent upon God and his prayer to rectify the situation and bring justice to these people. Yeah. Um, and I love that. That it's it's just that dependency language again. Like we're not just we're not just relying on God for answers and dependent upon him for answers to the hard questions, but we're also re relying on his character and his promises to be able to bring justice Absolutely. in these situations the and church not try is, to act it out ourselves. The church is God's agency in, yeah. in a broken world, and so it's, yeah. to, and we'll get in a minute, it's to be a voice for the voiceless in that yeah. sense. And so I love the way you broke down the text, and again, I just want to pause, like, this is something that somebody can do in in their Bible reading. Yeah. And so like when you were talking about before you got to these commentaries and stuff, yeah. you know, we always say that's the last step in right. your sermon. You you do the work yourself. Yeah. Um, Spurgeon said, I milk many cows, but I churn my own butter. Yeah. And what he meant was like I do the hard work. Then I go and see, am I am I saying the right stuff that other people have said? And so just in your daily Bible reading, yeah. when you come across a difficult passage, let's say like Psalm 10, what Pastor Tyler did was is, is he sort of stepped back and then put this thing in some buckets and boxes as to how to consciously understand what it is. Yeah. And I just want to pause and say that that is what it is to meditate on God's Word, yeah. as Psalm 1 says. Yeah. We're not just blowing through Psalm 10 to mark off on our Bible reading so our conscience is eased right. that we've done the good Christian thing, but it is to understand, and it is to meditate that, yeah. uh, meditate on that. And so you broke it down for us in into sort of three big points with some sub-points, but you said there's a pair of people, there's the oppressor, and then there's the oppressed. Yeah. And before we dove into that, you sort of said, hey, let's spend some time on what oppression isn't, yeah. and then on what oppression is, yeah. which I think is 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 really really helpful. Well, in the same in the same way, we kind of do the same thing for like justice towards the end of the sermon yeah. and unpacking that. But like, what we have to be able to define what we're talking about, yep. Because 
what we see in the text is oppression and injustice, but those words in the climate that we live in yep. right now are so ambiguous. Sure. And they, I mean, there are some people who could give you a stark definition, but usually it's objective, it's, it's subjective to their life and their experience and all of that. Sure. And we wanted to come up with a definition that came from the scriptures. Yeah. So, I mean, I even think about, you know, not to get controversial or anything, but to think about the riots and stuff that have happened within the past year yeah. and all of that. And, you know, hearing chants like no justice and no peace yeah, and, and to really step back and do what you said, define our terms. What is justice? What yeah. is, what is peace? Is yeah. peace just the absence of conflict? Yeah. What is justice? Yeah. Is it just because you want to see something happen to a certain individual. Yeah. I think those things are really, really important in that sense. And, yeah. and you said oppression isn't, you know, a funny illustration like, oh no, Chick-fil-A is closed on a Sunday and <laughs> I'm being persecuted, you know, for Christ or mm-hmm. something along those lines. Why do we as Christians um, confuse, you know, oppression or persecution, and immediately the moment that a Christian faces any sort of opposition or any sort of challenge, we immediately jump to the persecution or the oppression line. Why do you think that is? Man, I'm going to say I don't know a lot today, but I think I I can probably guess a little bit, and we'll get into pride here in a little, in just a few minutes, but I think the the culture that we live in, every everything is revolving around the individual. Like yeah. the, the, the enlightenment phase, the, the great awakening, and everybody basically thinking that everything that is important in life only revolves around my comfort and what is convenient for me. Mm. And the moment that we I mean, just think about think about your day and how easy it is to live a comfortable life. Sure. You wake up in the morning, you have running water that comes out of your sink. You usually have toothpaste and a toothbrush available. You can pop some vitamins that help your health throughout the day. You have a device in your hand that has more information in it than the first Apollo mission that went yep. to the moon. More technology. And it's crazy. Yeah, we have everything that is at our disposal to bring us convenience and to make our days easier. And I think the moment that we're so ingrained in that and we are so comfortable there that the moment that that is challenged, um, and even on an emotional level, I mean, we have apps like Headspace to be able to like center yourself and to care for your emotional health and all that. So the moment that we hit any kind of bump in the road, we start asking the question, why? Like, Lord, you're not around. It's like, well, you just got a flat tire because you ran over a nail. It's it's not a huge deal. Yeah, no, I think you're right in saying that we live in such a level of comfort that the moment that that comfort is challenged or taken away, we think, oh no, because we sort of have bought into a lie that Jesus, the goal of my Christianity and my relationship with Jesus is to make my life better, Yeah, is to improve my life in that sense. And yeah. so that's helpful to define what it isn't. And then you defined what it is, um, just sort of from a secular standpoint and then from the scriptures. Yeah. Walk us through what 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 is oppression? Yeah. Well, and again, I, like, I uh, ultimately I don't know. Like I think I think I tried to do the best I could with drawing what the scriptures say about oppression. Um, but there's probably a better definition out there. But this is the one that we worked from. Uh, we eventually got to oppression seen in the scriptures is just the use of power so that others remain powerless. Mm. But I want to unpack how we got there because you love the Oxford English Dictionary, I and do. I promise one day you will get the set. <laughs> I, I think it's like $19,000. It's so. a nerd goal. Uh, yeah. It's like $1,500. <laughs> it's like 1500 bucks yeah. for like 26 volumes yeah. of incredible but stuff. But you want the newest volume that has, uh, what, Tweet, I think, is in there now? Yeah, all like kinds of selfie. Yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah. So the Oxford English Dictionary definition is cruel and unfair treatment of people, especially by not giving them the same rights as other people. Sure. And I think that's a fair definition in turn if you look culturally at the world around us and that we I mean you can see this in American history and global history. Yep. You can kind of identify that with like some of the big buckets of how we've seen like groups of people oppressed for their race or the color of their skin yep. or anything like that. Immediately I think of obviously the civil rights movement. Yeah, I absolutely. think of Dr. King. Yeah. I think of the bus boycott, the diner sit-ins. Right. I mean it's it's so crazy that when you look at the timeline of American history, that African-Americans have only been able to vote for like 70-ish years. 
I mean, guys, that's a third of our country's life. That's, span. I mean, uh, so yeah. what we're saying is almost 80 years ago, yeah, a black man wasn't able to vote. Yeah. You know, people, that's you, crazy. You know, someone who's still alive who was alive when that was happening. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Everybody knows somebody who is yes. in their 80s. Yeah. And so I think that's important because again, yeah. you know, we have what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, right. where, where we look back and we say, those things are so removed. Look right. at us. Look at those people. Yeah. But the reality is, is that this is not far removed. But yeah. I love the succinct definition of the idea that is to use, and then I jotted down, really abuse, yeah. the abuse of power yeah. so others remain powerless. Yeah. It is a protecting. It is a keeping out. It yeah. is making sure that these group of people stay this way, yeah. and there are injustices there, yeah. so these people can remain yeah. in power. Now, it's willful as well. Where it does get a little bit tricky is... It doesn't just boil down to power, though that is yeah. a massive part of it. I think that's where these guys like Jordan Peterson and stuff help us in these conversations. Yeah. The question that we should be asking, though, is who gets to yield that right. and who gets to define that and yeah. what's that based on? And you get into that a little bit, but walk us through where is sort of the roots of this word in the scriptures? Yeah. You, you brought up something that I thought was really, really important that the words kind of justice and righteousness are really close together in yeah. the scriptures. Yeah. Um, well, let me talk about oppression and the, and the words that we pulled from there to get to that definition. Because the, excuse me, the, um, dude, I grilled Serrano peppers last night. <laughs> and my body is like, why? Yes. <laughs> why did you do Basically, this? you ate mace. Yeah, that's pretty much what happened. Yes. The store was out of jalapenos. I was like, let's try Serrano peppers. Let's try ghost peppers, yeah, babe. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'll just put some of that on my toothbrush That's in the morning. So uh, there, there are three words that I kind of pulled. The main one that we see in the Old Testament, um, it's in the sermon notes that you can get in the in the show notes for this, but um, it's the Hebrew lakats, uh, bless you. Uh, it essentially right. means wrong done, like general wrongdoing towards others or okay. like a place yeah. of distress. So you can think of like the people of Israel when they are slaves in Egypt and they are basically like ridiculed and said to the point, you know, Moses goes and tries to do something kind for them and ask Pharaoh to let God's people go. And they're like, well, we're just going to press down harder. Now you have to get your own straw to make your own bricks. We're not right. going to provide. That's wrong. That's being done to them yes. and all of that. And they're in distress because of it. In the New Testament, in James chapter two, verse six, we see a Greek word that is katadynastuo, I think Huge. is how you pronounce it. Yeah. And that's, that's a little further. It's to exercise harsh control over somebody or to use your power against somebody else, whatever. Yeah. A place of power. If you're a king, or if you have a prominent position in your community, that you're using that to to harshly control somebody. Yeah. Um, and then what we see in the text in Psalm chapter 10, uh, we see it a couple times in verse 18. We see it in its most meaningful way it comes from the word "dak," which is just the root meaning that means to be like emotionally crushed, mm. um, or to be physically injured or afflicted, to yeah. to suffer from violence. And we actually see that. I mean, this oppressor man is is not. Yes, there are things that start in his heart, but we also see it carried out. I mean, it says it says that yep. in verse eight that he sits in ambush in the villages and then he murders innocent people. Right. Um, he's lurking to take the life of somebody else. And that's yeah. what we see. So we wrapped all of that together because all of those touch on different areas sure. of oppression. And that's where we kind of came up with that definition of the use of power so that others remain powerless. I think what's important to note here is, is in your definitions, there's something lurking under the surface. And it's always in conversations as well that I think is helpful to go beneath the surface to the heart of the conversation. And I think we get there by doing what David does in the first verse is to ask that why question. Yeah. And the question is this, no matter if there's marching in the street, if there's, um, if there's anything that's going on and there is a group of people or an individual that says this is wrong. Yeah. The question should be by what standard? Right. By what standard? Yeah. And so even take Dr. King as an example. Yeah. 
he appealed to obviously the nation's constitution, yeah. which said all men were created equal. Yeah. Now the tension there is that that was written by men who owned slaves. Right. And so there's a natural contradiction there, but he took it a step further and said, it's because people are created in the image and likeness of God, Amen. the Imago Dei. Yeah. And, and the whole reason why I'm saying all of this is because it goes back to your big idea. I believe, and one of the persuading reasons why I am a Christian is because I believe that Christianity has the best attempt at a worldview. And so if I didn't believe in this God who created um, human beings in his image and likeness and gave them dignity and worth, um, for example, if you went the Charles Darwin route and said, you know, through evolution and this, that, and the other— what is your argument based upon right. as to say that this is wrong or this is immoral? Yeah. Because you don't have a standard right. of value placed right. on an individual. Yeah. And so as Christians, I just think it's so important that, they, I mean, these are deep philosophical understandings, yeah. but when you back up and realize how important they are, they are important because it is a worldview that we have. Yeah. David is looking at the world around him, and he is seeing things, and he's saying these things are broken yeah. because I do have a standard in that sense. Yeah. And so I just think it's really important for his Christians for us to understand that yeah. in that sense. That's good, man. And I, should, so, I should have said that in my sermon. When, right? There's always <laughs> the looking back. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. I should have said. Right. So so the pair, there's the oppressor and yeah. the oppressed. So walk us through sort of the yeah. oppressor. Yeah. Um, what does this individual look like? What's, yeah. what's going on? What are the characteristics here? Yeah, we see we see several things in the text. The first thing I saw is just scheming. I mean, do you see that you see yep. that word in, in the second half of verse two? Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. Yeah. And then you also see like scheming in action. And the the word that's used here for scheming is like it's thought out. It's premeditated. Yep. I said it's first degree oppression. Like it's right. something that's willfully thought out and that is going to be carried out for the benefit of the one who's carrying it out. So yeah. in verse seven, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression and under his tongue are mischief mm. and iniquity, like basically planning and trying to put these things together. And then verse eight and nine is where we see it. He sits in ambush in the villages and, not, and he hides in these places so that he can creep out and kill people yeah. who are innocent. And then he's stealthily watching for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion. He lurks that he can seize the poor. And when he does, he draws them into his net and they're crushed. And I, I really, I, I see this idea of scheming and it's easy to look at a sort of like, think of this as somebody who's in prison for like first degree murder yeah. and to basically think like, oh, that's something I would never do. Right. And that's something I would never engage in. But yep. as, as we see, the, as we see, as we get further into how this oppressor uh, carries things out, uh, we see a root of it in his heart. And the first, the first place we see it is in selfishness. Yeah. Um, Basically, look at verse three, like the the wicked boasts of the desire of his soul. Mm. Like these are deeply rooted within Absolutely. what this person wants or what these people are trying to to derive. Out and I like of how these others. build on each other. Yeah. This person is operating every day that yeah. people he's using people and loving himself. Yeah. And and there's these schemes. Every day it's an advantage. Yeah. Every day it's how can I cut the corner? Well, why is he doing that? Well, yeah. he's doing that. Because he loves himself. Yeah. He's he's prideful in yeah. that. Or he's selfish, then yeah. which leads us to the third right. one. Yeah. Well, and the reason that this... The, I think the reason that I, I chose to... The reason that I chose to lay them out in this way is sort of backwards from how we view injustice in the world. Mm. We look at somebody and we're like, oh, the action that they have done deserves to be punishable by, you know, capital punishment or put into jail for a life sentence or whatever. And then we ask, why did they do this? Okay, well, it's because they're selfish. And then, and then we see the the root of the heart. But what I I love what David is doing here, he basically unpacks it in the way that Jesus would. He starts with the heart. Yeah. And that's where we see proud. The, The oppressor is scheming and selfish, but at the root of it all, it's because he's proud. Right. And that, that is where all of this begins. It begins in his heart. There's four different four different places that's mentioned where this this prideful action and this prideful thinking takes place in this guy's heart. And first one is in verse three, it's the desires of his soul. And then we see in verse four, the word pride in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. And then we see here and we, we see the 
the heart language. In verse 6, he says in his heart, I won't be moved. Throughout all generations, I'm not going to meet any kind of adversity. Yeah. And then we see again in verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He won't see this. That verse, verse 11, I, is so haunting in that sense because yeah. what I see about this oppressor is that they genuinely believe that they are the exemption. Yeah, yeah. That, that they that yeah. this doesn't really apply to them, yeah. that they can do these things yeah. because essentially they're their own God yeah. Yeah. in that and in, sense. And in verse 13, and he says in his heart, you will not call to account. And it goes deeper, just like you're saying. It's not just, oh, God's, I'm not going to get caught. Right. It's that God's not even around to see me. Mm. And that's what that's why I quoted Spurgeon, man. Like Spurgeon essentially essentially broke down like what pride actually does. I mean, look at the end of verse four. The wicked doesn't seek him. And what that basically says, what what that does for him is it basically makes him think there is no God. Right. Pride essentially removes him from any level of authority around him, whether it is God or mm. the culture around him. And uh, Charles Spurgeon um, on, on this psalm in his Treasury of David, he says, see the effect of pride. It kept the man from seeking God. It's hard to pray with a stiff neck and an unbending knee. God's not in his thoughts. He thought much, obviously, <laughs> about right. everything that he's trying to carry out, but he had no thoughts for God. The only place where God is not is in the thoughts of the wicked. Mm. And he says this is a damning accusation for where the God of heaven is not. The Lord of hell is regaining and raging in that man's soul. And if God is not in our thoughts, our shouts will bring us to perdition or to hell. That's and, so haunting in the yeah. sense because the idea that you know, pride says that you're self-sufficient. So why, why would I need to pursue God? Why yeah. would I need to? And and to break it down, even again, more boots on the ground. Because with Psalm 10, the tension that you felt was this can become very ethereal. This yeah. can become very philosophical. Yeah. And we can debate this. But just to get boots on the ground here, like I've had conversations with men and women who were struggling with addictions. Yeah and wanted to have lunch with me, and they spill their story, and at the very, very end of it, they say, so I need some help. I mean, I don't need to go off anywhere. Right. I mean, I'm not going to go off and stay six months or do something like that somewhere. Yeah. I just need something to do to kind of get me on the right track. Yeah. And what they're saying is, is I am wanting to surrender my life while at the same time being in control, right. which is absolutely impossible yeah. to do. And you defined pride for us in, yeah. in a certain way. Tell us what that is. Yeah, pride is, pride is just placing yourself in a prominent position, and more so what we see here is in God's position. Uh, yes. Pride is placing yourself in the ultimate level of authority and acting out in it. Yeah, that and, comes from when in Isaiah when it says that Lucifer... Um, desired God's throne. Yeah, that that Lucifer des desired to be in God's position, and therefore he got cast out. Yeah, like lightning, like Jesus says. Yeah, and I, I I love I love how we are not exempt. Like again, we can look at this guy and be like, he's not fun at parties. He's a jerk. He's somebody that I th I know of, or I, I can think of somebody who who's like this. But the last thing we do in our pride is say I'm like this. Yeah, and that's the application. Christians aren't exempt from oppressing others because the source of oppression is pride, and pride is at the root of of control and and pride is at the root of authority in our lives, what we don't submit to and all of that. Yeah. And we are not exempt from that. All no. of us should be able to identify specifically in the text with this guy, with this group of people. J.A. Motyer, I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase, um, he basically said, uh, modern people uh, wouldn't be surprised to be told that the root of what this man does is his atheism. But it's not, it's not just a conviction that's in his mind, but it's actually what he practices and where it comes from in his heart. And he, he says this, we can cheerfully coexist with church attendance and reciting of the creed. So like singing songs, coming to the table and all of that, and still have this in our hearts yeah. and still ask our, and still think these things in our minds, like from verse six, verse 11, verse 13, like, uh, we say God won't call to account or he's not going to find out. God's forgotten. He'll hide his face. Um, and he doesn't even seek God and in his yeah. thoughts, God isn't found. And I just asked like, do we, 
do we ask these questions? Like, yep. do we do we say these things in our hearts? The answer is yes, we yeah. do. We do say things like, this isn't too bad. I can go this far today and it won't be that bad. Or God will forgive me because of his abounding grace so I can go here or whatever. Or even taking it as far as, as categorizing groups of people and looking at people because of their race or where they were brought up or the kind of money that they do or they don't make. And we think and look down our noses at them and think that we're better, or that we deserve something from them or they deserve. Yeah something to happen to them. I think what's so powerful and and to bring it back is is this that the switch that you made was when David looks around and sees this oppressor and then we see the characteristics we have to be honest with ourselves because we can't just look at the world or you know Adolf Hitler or right. these people and say, wow, look at that oppression, look at those oppressors, look at those people. If we're honest, there's a part of that that lives in us. Yeah. And, and what I mean by that is, for example, Timothy McVeigh, on the day of his execution, his last words were, he quoted the poem by Ernest Hemingway, Invictus, yeah. which, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be, for my unconquerable soul. Mm. And he keeps going on, going on. And the very last line is, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my own soul. Mm. And so we look at a guy like Timothy McVeigh, the horrors that was done, the oppression that was done, and we see him say this. But the reality is, is any time that I sin, yeah. Anytime that I pursue the things of the world, yeah. what I am saying is, I'm the captain of my own fate. Yeah. I'm the captain of my own soul. Yeah. And what that does is it humbles us and goes, oh my gosh, we if, if it isn't but for the grace of God, there yeah. go I in that sense. Right. And so continuing on, we, we see the oppressor. Yeah. And then when we draw that down to an application, we realize, man, there's a part of that that lives in me. Yeah. But then God is really concerned about the oppressed right. we see in this psalm. Yeah. Walk us through kind of, man, God really cares about these people. Yeah, man, absolutely. Well, David identifies them because this is David's psalm. Like this is this is how he's identifying them. He identifies them as helpless, poor, and fatherless. Yeah. Um, helpless, we see that word used in verse 10. The helpless are crushed. They sink down and they fall by the might of the oppressor. And then we see the poor. We see the poor in verse 9. He mm. lurks in ambush like a lion. He lurks that he can seize the poor. And he seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. And what I what I immediately saw when I saw those two things um, were just people who have no way of providing justice for themselves. Yep. They have no resources. They have no money. They have nothing to be able to bring. A, they have no stature or position to be able to bring about justice for themselves. They are helpless. Yeah. They are poor. And the last one's fatherless. In verse 14, um, in verse 14, he says, you do see, you note vexation. Drop down at the end of that verse. You've been the helper of the fatherless, and then in verse 18, to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed. And yeah, it's so crazy to think how strong of a language, and if you want to do a fun Bible study, and even just in the Gospels, look at how many times Jesus references the poor. Yeah, I mean, in the scriptures, guys, there are like three to four categories of people that God moves towards yeah. always. Yeah. It's widows, orphans, and the poor. Yeah. I mean, constantly. When yeah. society casts them out, God is moving constantly to them. And, yeah. and what we said, and in the beginning of your sermon, Psalm 9 and 10 sort of go together. Psalm 10 yeah. is sort of like part two. In, in the Jewish scriptures, these are one psalm. But in Psalm 9, verse uh, 18, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and yeah. the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. I mean, yeah. God is deeply, deeply concerned yeah. about the poor. And so here's a question. If, if God is so concerned and that is so important to him, why do you think it's not on our radar? And, and, <laughs> and here's what I mean by this. When, when you look at the modern-day church— there is a stark contrast 
to the early church. Now, I'm not one of those that's like, we got to always get back to the early church, man. Right. Like when God killed people during the offering. Right. Because that happened in the early church. <laughs> Let's go back. But what I see when you trace back, and again, Psalm 10, I think, is crafting a worldview for us. Um, there's a reason why every hospital is named Saint such and such. Right. Orphanages. Um, all of these things, modern medicine, yeah. um, law, all of that stuff births out of the church yeah. and in a view of that. Yeah. And what we see in the early church and early Christians is moving towards the poor. Yeah. I mean, there was a deep concern for that. Yeah. And nowadays, it's almost like that's just tacked on to right. things. It's yeah. kind of like, hey, guys, you know, our year in review... What's going to be our local missions or, right. or something along those lines? Why do you think that to see how important it is to God, but it kind of falls to the wayside yeah. for the lovers of God? Why yeah. do you think that is? Well, I, I, think it goes, I think it goes back to pride, us all identifying with the oppressor. But I, I think Charles Spurgeon said this. You've quoted it before. He says, he says the church is a whore, but she is my mother. That's Augustine. Augustine, Augustine, yeah. that's right. He, uh, uh, Augustine said that, and I, I immediately think to that. I mean, we we are in the process of being sanctified and yeah. being more made more like Jesus. And in the culture that we live in, in terms of church and how it's structured, I, I love what Dave Rhodes said at Grace. He said that the, the big buckets that we pour all of our time and attention into for, for the gathering is attend, connect, and serve. Sure. That we essentially ask everybody to, to come, to get connected with other people, and to serve somewhere, and that's the mark of a healthy church. When in reality, the mark of a healthy church is healthy disciples, is healthy yep. Christians. And I think you don't get there when when the culture is revolving around this idea of, of giving people something and providing people something that makes them feel better, that makes them feel as though they are part of a community. That's Those are good things, but sure. they're not the main thing. Absolutely. And I think we lose focus of that, and the thing that falls by the wayside are the tangible, tactile things that we can do as we are living our journeys of discipleship with one another and seeing those who are marginalized and seeing those who are poor and seeing those who are helpless and not just thinking about them and just praying and, you know, God be with them or whatever, but actually taking action and doing something tangible for them. Yeah, that's good, man. Yeah. That's good. And you said as your application sentence, as Christians, we have a responsibility to be a voice for the oppressed yeah. and against the oppressor, yeah. to stand by the side of those people who are oppressed and to stand up yeah. to the person who is doing that. Yeah. And man, that was such a powerful sentence because it excited me because it gets back to the roots and the heart of what the church is supposed to be. Yeah. Historically, it is supposed to be a shelter for the outcasts and for the people that the world has chewed up and spit out. Yeah. The world, uh, the church wraps its arms around those individuals. And listen, churches get a bad rap a yeah. lot of times, and oftentimes churches are in the news when they are the oppressor. Yeah. And unfortunately, that has happened. But yeah. the reality is, guys, is that your your average local church is giving away money, yeah. is tutoring kids after school yeah, who don't man. have dads. Like, man, I just, and especially during COVID, I mean, I know our church had like a COVID care thing, but to yeah. see, um, I don't know. I just really love that sentence because it gets to the heart of the mission yeah. of the church. Yeah, well, and the, and the way that we see David doing it is he prays. He prays yeah. for justice, and that's the second point, the prayer the prayer for justice. I mean, we see the first, the first time we see it is in verse 2, um, let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. And then we also see it in verse 12, arise, O Lord, O God. And he says, lift up your hand. Don't forget the afflicted. And then he says it again in verse 18, do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. Here it is, so that the man who is of the earth won't strike terror anymore. Yeah. And I used an illustration that essentially there was a woman who was captured um, in 2014 and abused uh, by ISIS and on a regular basis every single day. And then... Um, Four years later, she's an activist and uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize with this guy named Dr. Miracle, Dr. Dennis McWeegee. And uh, he essentially just deals with like reconstructive surgery for people who are abused on a daily basis. And, wow. and he was quoted as uh, he, he was quoted at the at 
at receiving the Nobel Peace Prize was saying, as long as our faith is defined by theory and not connected with practical realities, we won't be able to fulfill the mission entrusted to us by Jesus. If we're Christ's, we have no choice but to be alongside the weak, the wounded, the refugees, and the women suffering discrimination. A hundred percent. And that's boots on the ground, man. That's that. This guy was doing what he's equipped to do. This guy was doing what he has been to school for and is using a practical reality that he can that he can put to work in the lives of the marginalized and the hurt and the broken. I love that. I love it because we say this a lot of times, God, you might be the answer to someone's prayer. Yeah. And what I mean by that is somebody who's praying, God, you know, I've got my mortgage coming up at the end of the month right. or there's something going on or something is happening. We are God's agents yeah. here on the earth to be able to do that. And it's yeah. so much more in this day and age than just liking the Facebook page or sharing the hashtag. Right. Because what I've seen is to step in and identify with these people yeah. is also to absorb some of that pain yeah. as well. I yeah. don't think that we can enter into these relationships and still remain safe yeah. in that sense. And you said that this prayer is a petition, yeah. and, it, and it's asking God to, to do some things yeah. here, yeah. which I want to pause. It's, it's okay, obviously, to ask God for stuff. Yeah. He wants us to do that for sure. Yeah. Um, I think when we look at prayers in the scriptures, the asking God for stuff kinds, uh, comes kind of towards the end of a prayer yeah. instead of at the beginning. Right. But look at the type of stuff David is asking God for. Yeah. This is a game changer yeah, for man. our prayers. Walk us through this. Yeah, well, he, he's David's praying for two things. In the same way that Dr. Miracle did what was at his disposal and what he was equipped to do, this is what we are equipped to do. We are equipped first and foremost to go to God in prayer. And David prays two things. Number one, he prays that God would remember the oppressed. In verse 12, he said, in verse 12, he says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Don't forget the afflicted. Mm. And that struck me because God doesn't for God, God doesn't forget. Like right. God is one who is God is the one who is all-knowing, omniscient, omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. And I, I know we've talked about manifest presence and omnipresence, but the God God is there. God and Psalm 34 says God is near the brokenhearted and those who are crushed in spirit. And so David is sort of reflecting that and he is saying, God, I know that you're not a forgetful God, but right now, just like I said in verse one, it feels like you're far away. It feels like you've hidden yourself. So I'm asking you to remember, to come close, to be near to those who mm. are broken and afflicted and oppressed. And don't forget them, to be there with them. Uh, we said we said on Sunday that God's word says that before you were formed in your mother's womb, he knew you, and every hair on your head, whether you're bald or not, is numbered. Right. God intimately knows and is interacting with his creation. And I love that. Even, even though that's a fact, David is still being honest and asking God to remember the oppressed. And he also he doesn't just stop there. He's, he's not just a voice for the oppressed, but he's also a voice against the oppressor. Yeah. He asks for justice to be brought to the oppressor. Verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you won't call this to account? And here it is, but you do see you note mischief and vexation that you can take it into your hands. The helpless commits himself to you, and you've been the helper of the fatherless. Verse 15, he, this is like violence language. Break the arm of the wicked right. and the evildoer so th there's no more wickedness to be found in him. And that's a, it seems like a dangerous, honest prayer. But that is what we are called to do. If we are going to live our lives in accordance with the Scripture and submit to God and His authority and His Word, we have to not just pray for God to remember the oppressed, but we also have to pray that He would take action against the oppressor. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's really important for us to pause and to reflect on because I think there's great errors when it comes, you know, to this topic. On one side of yeah. the road, you know, there's a ditch on either side of the road, and one of the ditches is is that, you know, Christians are nice and we forgive and we do all of that. And yeah. yes, we do. And we believe that. But right. at the same time, you can forgive someone and love someone and call the cops right. on someone. Yeah. You can, God has orchestrated and constructed these things yeah. to be a certain way. The other ditch on the other side of the road is to think that now, 
um, I'm an avenging angel, if yeah. you will. Your and whole that, life is an imprecatory song. Yes, yeah, and I'm going forward and I'm doing all of this, when in reality, God says, vengeance is mine, yeah. says the Lord. That's yeah. that's God's. Yeah. And, and, and I really think vengeance, I think justice without forgiveness is vengeance. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. Because the key that undergirds all of that is is the forgiveness and I want I know we're getting close on time I want to yeah. move to part uh point 3 where you sort of wrap it up with yeah. the idea of the provider of justice. Yeah. Like who's who's qualified to do this? Right. Who's supposed to do these things? That is the question. Like uh, David is praying for these things God is quoted with saying that David is a man, I found a man after my own heart. Right. And David's heart, the reason he's praying these things is because his heart, his heart breaks for what breaks God's heart. And that's why he's praying those things. But he also knows that ultimately he is not the provider of justice. Yeah. Like David is not. Da- David himself is not the one who can carry out ultimate righteous justice on this oppressor. That it's only God who is the provider of justice. It says in in verse 14, God is the one who sees and notes mischief and vexation. Yes, David is aware of these things, but God God sees them and he takes it into his own hands. Yes. God is the one who helps uh, who uh, God is the one who the helpless commit themselves to and God has been the helper of the fatherless. But uh, that's a question that I wrestled with in terms of justice and righteousness like who defines what justice really is? Yep. Who defines what righteousness is because we can think of it in our own terms of of like justice and and the scales in our governments and we basically put these laws together whoever breaks them will essentially need to be brought to justice and when they are no longer brought when they are not within the parameters of the law then they are no longer righteous and we have kind of a, a skewed understanding of what justice and righteousness are. Absolutely. We, we separate the two, and we, we do it regularly. But Jewish, ancient Jewish culture, in the way that, that David would have understood these words, and we see them in the scriptures, they're, they're sewn together. Yep. They are knitted so closely together, and they are not just actions of God, but they are characteristics and quality traits of who he is. Right. God is the only one who is fully just. God is the only one, as his word said, he, he, is, he, he is so pure of heart and, and that he can't even look on sin. He's so pure, but he's also righteous. He's, he's, he's totally, they would have understood this in two ways. I broke it down in the sermon. Justice came through the law and righteousness came through the covenant. Justice was the law, which was right living in the, with the ways that God instructed the people to live. And then righteousness was found in the covenant, its right standing in the future promises that God gave to his people. We cannot fulfill either of those. Right. With, um, Romans chapter 3 says that the, the law exists to shut the mouth of man. It, we cannot uphold it or live to it perfectly. Righteousness and the co- we we can't co- we break covenant with God when we are unjust and we no longer stand in the future promises that He gives to His people. So we cannot be the ones who def- no human can define what justice and righteousness are apart from the God Man Jesus Christ. Right. Jesus Christ is fully just and fully righteous and lived that sinless life and died the death that we deserve for our injustice and our unrighteousness and rose again the third day, conquering those things. And we fail at both of these, but ultimately I said God is the only one that provides both. And I think the important thing is is that obviously, again, if Psalm 10 is helping us with a worldview here, yeah. what we see in the cross is just that. Yeah. We see this righteous God who is taking on, he's absorbing yeah. all of this justice. Yeah. Um, you know, I've I've heard before an analogy that what Christianity is is that it is this courtroom, and there is a judge, and there we stand guilty. But yeah. what this judge does is this judge gets off of his throne and off of his chair and puts himself in our place. Yeah. That's that's what the good news is about this. And you yeah. summed it up and read a quote from Dane Ortland, and, yeah. and I think that's a good place to end. Um, yeah. It's a really good quote. Yeah, he says in The Lord I Take Refuge, this is on page 34, it's cited in the notes if you want to look at that. He says, God will one day right all wrongs, straighten out all that is bent, and rinse this world clean of all injustice. And how do we know this? Because in the middle of human history, God proved the lengths to which he was willing to go to undo injustice. Mm. He sent his own son, 
the one man who was ever truly just, to go to a cross and swallow all of the injustices of the world who would simply trust in him. Does this mean that we can overlook injustices committed against the helpless today? No. On the contrary, it means that we are freshly empowered and motivated to fight the horrors of this world, knowing that the horror of our own sin has been justly wiped away by sheer grace in the work of Christ received by faith. I love it. Yeah, man. I love it. It's beautiful. You closed us out and and kept us or asked us a few questions. And I think these are great to sort of guide us um, as even we end this podcast and sort of walk through the week. Um, I'm going to read these questions and I want to close us in a uh, scripture. And I've got a few announcements for us. But the first one was, where do I see oppression? Um, and where do I see the oppressed? Where do you see that going on in your life? Are you aware of that? Open your eyes to that. Yeah. Uh, the second one, who have I hurt with my pride? The third one, what injustice will I pray for this week that will be heavy on your heart yeah. for you to ask God to break your heart over this? Yeah. And then lastly, is my hope in the promises and character of yeah. God? Psalm 10, man, as Christians, we need to have an awareness of and action against injustices in the world. I wanted to close this out with um, Malachi is very appropriate. Chapter 6 says this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Mm. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression or the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with the Lord your God. Amen. Hey, guys, thanks for tuning in today. We've got a few exciting announcements. This Sunday, we start a brand new series through the book of Acts. And so this is going to be our vision series for the year as we look at what it is to be a Grace Family Church rooted and renegade, a journey through the book of Acts. And so this is going to be a fantastic time to invite friends, family, come be a part of that. And then next Monday, Westside Women launches at 6.30. This is a fantastic place for some ladies to get gathered together, to know each other, to know God's Word. So if you're a lady 16 years or older, that will be happening uh, next Monday at 6.30. And then next Wednesday at 6.30, we'll be launching Westside Men, which is a fantastic place for men to gather together to follow the God-man Jesus Christ. And so if you guys need any more information about us as a church, check out our website at westsidepb.org. If you got any questions about anything, especially the sermon that we just spent time discussing, shoot us an email at info at westsidepb.org. And until then, may everything we do be all about Jesus. Love you guys. Blessings. Toodles. Toodles.